Broadcasting from the Business Radio X studio in Alpharetta, it's time for Profit Sense with Bill McDermott. Good morning. Welcome to Profit Sense. This podcast dives into the stories behind some of Atlanta's successful businesses and business owners and the professionals that advise them. We help local business leaders get the word out about the important work they're doing to serve their market, their community, and their profession, as well as discuss issues that business owners are facing today across a wide variety of industries. I'm your host, Bill McDermott, and this show is presented by The Profitability Coach. When business owners want to increase their profitability, they don't have the expertise to know where to start or what to do. I leverage my knowledge and relationships from 32 years as a banker to identify the hurdles getting in the way and create a plan to deliver profitability they never thought possible. We have two great guests on the show today. Uh, Grant Brim. Grant, welcome. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. And Ron Bracewell, Managing Partner with Bates Carter. Ron, great to have you on Profit Sense. Great to be here, Bill. Grant, good to, good to be on with you. Absolutely. So, Ron, I'm going to start with you. You know, it's hard to transfer a business, um, and there are factors involved. So let me just kind of start out with a question. Is is business easily transferred or continued, and what are some of the factors involved? Well, I'd say the general answer is no. <laughs> it's not easy to transfer. Agreed. And uh, I, I've always thought, worked with closely held businesses, and it has given me an appreciation of the New York Stock Exchange, the public market, Mm. how efficient that market is. That's contrasted with the market that our clients are dealing in. They have to make their own market. Yeah. And uh, that's that's typically in a sales environment, but uh, there are other ways to transfer your business. But uh, there are challenges. Time, money, finding a buyer, all of those things are, are challenges. Yeah, and to try to peel that onion back maybe even a little uh, a little further, if your business can be transferred, who's your most qualified buyer or successor? And also, what are the attributes that make for the best buyer or a successor? Yeah, interestingly, your number one competitor may be your best buyer. Ah, okay. Uh, and because they presumably know how to do what you do and uh, and presumably would be willing to pay the, the highest price for it. Um, we've had experiences over the years where um, a number one competitor was a public company. And that's, that's the real goal mine there is uh, they want to eliminate you from the market and they may be willing to pay that in the form of cash and stock. Uh, for a, an internal transfer, it's usually a key employee, and many times in our business, it's a family member. It's sure. the next, next generation. That makes sense. Um, We're talking this morning with Ron Bracewell, who's a CPA with nearly 40 years' experience in a variety of areas of public accounting, including audit, tax, and consulting. He's also an accredited in business valuation, recognizing uh, his substantial experience and knowledge in valuations of closely held businesses. And so, Ron, I want to kind of now shift the discussion. Um, you know, I'm sure there's some questions that arise when you're advising your clients on whether to sell to a 30-year-old 
third party or to transfer to a family member or successor? What are some of those common questions that get asked? Yeah, I think the business owner has to um, be honest with himself or herself and and to look at that key employee or potential family member that uh, they're grooming for the next uh, generation and uh, really assess whether that individual is capable of taking over the ownership role. And uh, th- those are sometimes difficult but important questions to, uh, to ask. And um, I think that's where uh, a trusted advisor can come in and give them good, honest advice. And does that fit with their plan? Are they able to uh, internally transfer to a family member, which might suggest a gift. Sure. Um, You know, is that financially in the plans? Right, right. Uh, I know, you know, speaking for myself and thinking about my own business, so I have uh, two daughters who are are both uh, happy in their careers. Uh, I have sons-in-law, but I don't necessarily see them uh, transitioning into the business. And so uh, my individual challenge might might be a little different from that, but I could I could see how there's a lot of questions that go into that. Um, so I'm also a baby boomer. A lot of baby boomers are looking at retiring businesses. So that kind of leads me to the question, when should a person consider transferring a business? Yeah, yeah I think uh, that's obviously another component. And And to digress just a moment, Bill, I would say every business has some level of value. Um, I used to have a great analogy in saying uh, Tiger Woods cannot sell me his golf game. It's unique to him. Sure. He can't transfer it. Yeah. But I would be willing to pay him something for a year's worth of instruction. There you go. (laughs) And so, you know, even in the most personal service business without a quote-unquote book, there's usually some value to, to transfer. Sure. And uh, sometimes you have to unlock that. Um, but as far as the timing is, is concerned, um, <clears throat> I think that's generally, as you say, in the baby boomer generation, you, um, you should always be thinking about growing value as you grow your company, presumably in your 30s or 40s. Right. And uh, perhaps you start thinking about that exit strategy in your 50s. Don't wait until retirement to do it. Uh, that's usually the, the least profitable and most expensive way to, to exit. Uh, so it, it takes, takes some time. We've had instances where we had a client a couple of years ago who was of our age and uh, had been thinking about selling for a while, and this particular business was a hot uh, business. Private equity was interested in them, and the multiples were great. And then we also had the threat of a uh, tax increase. Sure. There was a discussion a few years ago about the capital gains rates increasing. So we had a conversation uh, one of a string of conversations over the years, and this particular one was, is now the time to pull the trigger? And all of those factors lined up. 
to say yes. And so he did. Yeah. And so I've, I've heard there are, are kind of three T's in a, in a business transaction. There's certainly taxes, uh, timing and in terms. And so, uh, uh, I do want to talk about uh, uh, steps to take in ensuring a successful transfer in a, in a moment. We're talking today with uh, Ron Bracewell, who's managing partner with Bates Carter. Bates Carter is a full-service firm founded in 1962. They offer traditional accounting, tax and audit services, uh, and enhanced with a range of advisory valuation and consulting services. And so talking about... Uh, Ensuring an effective transfer. You know, a business owner only exits once. Uh, he or she wants to maximize the value of the business. So what should a business owner be doing right now to ensure an effective transfer of the business, in your opinion, Ron? Well, I, I think of value as being a quantitative mathematical calculation. What's your EBITDA times the multiple, that sort of thing, your cash flow. But it's also qualitative. And so I say that Every buyer arrives at the table with uncertainty. Sure. And your job as the seller is to reduce that uncertainty. And so how do you go about that? And uh, the, the better your financial records are, the more times you can put in front of that potential buyer accurate, um, hopefully third-party attested financial statements, accurate tax returns, timely filed, uh, with fully reporting everything, the more you're going to reduce the uncertainty that that, that potential buyer has sure. and give them a better feeling about things. Yeah, and I found, um, of course, the, the test used to be having audited financials. Uh, I think now there are there are possibly even some buyers that use a review, uh, but typically there are there is some type of third party attest, attestation. I always stumble over that word. Yes, <laughs> uh, in order for the uh, for the buyer to feel comfortable about the uh, financial statements that are that the numbers are based on. Agreed, and uh, sometimes a compilation, which is the lowest level of reporting that accountants CPAs do is uh, satisfactory to the buyer. The larger the company, the more likely you are to, to need an audit. We have plenty of clients that have been planning for years. They know they're going to have an exit one day, and so they have uh, a long history of audited financials mm-hmm. for that reason. The other thing is uh, if, if you know your potential buyer or buyers, your market, that may direct you as to what is typically needed. Uh, and, and most business owners are talking to buddies that have sold and that sort of thing. And so sure. they have a general feeling for the market of buyers. But sometimes you don't. We've got a transaction going on now that's got a foreign buyer. Well, these people want an audit, mm-hmm. and, uh, and nothing less than that will suffice. So uh, sometimes you have to decide what your market is. Sure, sure. It's understandable. A lot of times uh, people don't want to pay for that audit. Uh, and so uh, I know in discussions, there's always a lot of give and take over terms and, and requirements, which then takes us to uh, due diligence. I know um, 
a lot of deals can fall apart uh, during due diligence. Uh, things are discovered. Uh, sometimes um, there's confusion. Uh, but I did want to talk to, uh, in your experience, what are what are the types of things uh, that you see buyers requesting during due diligence when they're acquiring a business? Yes, that's a, that's a long list. Uh, I think one of the areas that, that we see a lot of questions about tax reporting, mm-hmm. uh, particular multi-state, and uh, the states, If a, a typical business is probably going to file in more than one state. Or sure. maybe they should be filing in more than one state. Sure. Uh, and a, a savvy buyer is not going to just accept a rep and warranty to minimize his or her risk. Uh, they're going to comb through those those tax returns, and uh, they, they might do a nexus study. And if they determine in their eyes that you should have filed in South Carolina and Tennessee and North Carolina – then um, that's going to be a, an issue, and that's uh, the deal may still get done, but it may not be done quite as satisfactorily as you wanted it. Uh, so that type of thing you can you can address beforehand. Sure, you can do a nexus study. Uh, it's that's probably not a bad idea. Uh, Another area that we see in the tax world are different credits. For example, the recent uh, PPP loans mm. and the employee retention credits. Uh, while those were great and wonderful, they, they create uncertainty, and, and you have uh, what is an extended uh, tax audit window of five years instead of three. So a buyer comes in and, and has some risk associated with that. So you need to make sure all of those items are, are resolved. And uh, again, you communicate certainty to the buyer. Sure. Sure. I can see how that would be important. Um, closing thoughts. Uh, what if someone's thinking about selling their business and let's say five years out, What's generally a good place to start? What are the maybe the first two or three things that business owner should do, Ron? That's a great question. And I, I think the first place to start is in some sort of valuation consulting engagement. There's essentially two ways we produce valuations. One is with a thick report that's going to a, a, a user that um, – such as the IRS, who doesn't sure. know your company, and they need to, they go from knowing nothing about your company to reading the report and understanding what it does and what its value is. Evaluation consulting engagement is contrasted with that in that you're dealing with people that know the business and you anticipate selling to somebody that is going to know the business. So you don't need the big, thick report, you just need the, the quantitative analysis that sure. I talked about. Yeah. That's typically an income approach. Okay. Uh, it's it's a cash flows discounted at a required rate of return. Uh, said another way, it's your EBITDA, your earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization multiplied by a multiple. You get to the same place. It's just a different way to do the math. Sure, sure. 
It all starts with evaluation, doesn't it? It, it does, and, and what that, that does is give you an idea. Okay, this is where I am. That's not where I want to be. Okay, right. let's go grow some cash flow Yeah, and, and get there. Yeah. Uh, sometimes uh, inertia uh, prevails, but uh, once you get that body that's been at rest in motion, uh, then the goal is to stay in motion so that they can do the the planning they need to do. Absolutely. I'm thinking there are probably some listeners that will hear this podcast that may want to get in touch with you, either with uh, questions around their business or questions around valuation. What's the best way to, to reach you by, by phone or email? Yes. Uh, email is rbracewell at batescarter.com. And my last name is B-R-A-C-E-W-E-L-L as in brace well. Um, and phone number is 770-532-9131. And we're in Gainesville, Georgia, batescarter.com. You can find us pretty easily. We've been around 60 years, Bill. Wow. This August will be our 60th anniversary. Wow. Congratulations. That's, uh, that's quite a milestone. Thank you. And, uh, you know, again, Thank you for sharing your expertise, your experience, uh, words of wisdom, uh, things to do for business owners. Just been been an invaluable visit. Thanks, Ron. Thank you for the invite. Uh, we're going to turn our conversation now over to Grant Brim. Uh, Grant uh, started his own firm, Brim Law. And Grant, I just want to say first, uh, with many businesses marketing via social media and similar pa- platforms, uh, what are some of the issues that they're facing that are unique to those arenas? Sure. And what you'll, I think what I've seen um, in the last couple of years is obviously as the Internet's grown, doing business online has become more available, more accessible for everyone. But as that's sort of evolved, especially with things like TikTok and stuff like that, I have, first of all, younger people coming to me that are starting businesses or have purchased businesses or are getting into the arena. Um, there's a couple of different issues that come up. I mean, the first one seems to be for me is that a lot of folks that I've dealt with traditionally have been in business for years. And some of the basic things that, uh, that, that they, that I think a lot of business people and uh, that I sometimes will take for, have taken for granted, they don't know the, the people that are coming in. So simple things that seem simple to me may not be for somebody that's, you know, 23 years old and never been in business before. So uh, the importance of having proper entity type um, and things like that. As it relates to everybody online, especially with things like TikTok, for example, is I'm seeing uh, a lot of trademark infringement issues come up. So you, a, a company may have a, a logo or a slogan. These things online are getting ripped off left and right um, and used on the same platform by other users to make money off of that off of that brand. And so being able to protect that properly is extremely important. And what you'll find is um, uh, most of these platforms, and it goes from Amazon uh, uh, through to something like TikTok, for example, they have a they typically will have a process in place in their own policies. <clears throat> excuse me, that determine exactly how they deal with that. So if you have a, uh, a third party that has uh, inf- that is infringing upon a, a logo, for example, or a slogan or something like that. Uh, you have to first, before TikTok's going to do anything about that, you've got to show that you have done your part. You've done, you've taken the proper steps to legally protect yourself as much as you can. And which typically in that situation means that you have a registered trademark protecting that 
that logo or that slogan or whatever that is. And if you have that and you go through their process, then they have their own process typically for removing that or in some, in some way or another dealing with that to the greatest extent, you know, you can get that done, which is what your goal should be. Um, I know Amazon has, for example, on sort of the same topic and I'm not a, I'm not a patent attorney. I have a patent attorneys that I work with, but I do sometimes run into situations with clients that already have registered patents. If you have a registered patent and somebody puts a, a, a basically a product that's, that is uh, infringing upon that patent up, Amazon has a process to pull that down. Um, as long again, as you've gone through those steps and done what you're supposed to do along the way. Yeah. So kind of a follow-up question. Um, uh, how can businesses mitigate their liability or increase their ability to defend their brands in this arena? I know you talked a little bit about registered trademarks, but I'm sure there's some other things as well. That, well, that is actually the most important thing. Number one. Okay. And when it, because what, what, you, what will often happen with regard to trademarks is, I will get someone that I've, you know, has not been a client in the past that will come to me with an, with an infringement issue. And the biggest problem that they have is that they may have a trademark, but they have never registered that trademark. And registering a trademark is not as easy as forming an LLC, for example. It takes, it can take up to a year or even longer sometimes, depending on what kind of uh, issues come up along the way. So actually, the biggest thing they can do is to go ahead and figure out what their IP issues are out of the gate before they put their product up there or as soon as possible and go ahead and get those things dealt with. Um, and, and this sort of, and I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent from the question that you asked, but that kind of goes into other things that are not necessarily online. I mean, it goes into things like um, protecting trade secrets, for example. Um, you sure. have, and, and it's extremely important if a company, for example, has a sales force, a sales team, that they are taking proper step, steps to protect their customer list. And there's a legal way to do that, to make sure that if somebody, you know, misappropriates that you have a claim and you can do something about it. So that coming out of the gate to a, a qualified attorney to be able to counsel you on that and make sure that you've done everything you can do, because the, the key is you want to make sure that on your end, as a business owner, you've taken every step you can take to uh, put yourself in the best position to have that third party platform act on your behalf and remove the offending content. Sure. I can see how important that is. We're talking this morning with Grant Brim with Brim Law. Uh, Grant is a business attorney in Roswell and the founder of Brim Law. Grant has been in practice for 15 years, starting his firm in, in 2011. Uh, over the years, Grant's practice has evolved from litigating business disputes to helping prevent them in the first place, and his legal services are geared towards helping clients navigate the often treacherous legal landscape that comes with running a business, and it is treacherous for sure. Um, I want to now switch uh, topics a little bit. I know that uh, uh, some of your work is also as an outsourced in-house counsel uh, for businesses, so uh, why shouldn't a company simply simply use an employee policy manual or handbook uh, they find online for their company grant? So when you, you know, if you download or if you go to Google and you search employee policy manual, manual, you're going to find a bunch of examples. And a lot of what's in those examples is going to be great. Um, you're going to find many provisions that you need that may not need to be changed at all. The issue comes in with the differences in individual industries and businesses. So for example, if you have a, uh, let's say that you have a parking company 
Um, there are issues in that particular business that are not going to be found in, for example, a restaurant necessarily, or you know, uh, some other uh, a bakery or something like that. It's going to be very, very different what they need to do. And that those policies, for example, in that that scenario might relate to how do we handle vehicles, um, uh, how do we handle cars, and things like that. And what I found is that if you have when a when a company comes to me that and needs a policy manual, oftentimes the process of preparing that manual with them will identify issues in their business that they need to deal with that they hadn't thought about before. Um, it will also provide opportunities for training their employees on issues that they hadn't thought about before. Um, and, and to give you an example, I had a client that uh, had a, an employee go online, again, another online issue and post live video streaming while they were working, which accidentally released some data to the public um, that should not have been released. And the, the company was unaware of it, of course, until they got complaints, until they became aware of it. it there, now, that might have happened anyway, but it's less likely to happen if you have an appropriate manual in place and if there's training in place uh, along the way to make sure that, that the policies are actually implemented. Sure. And kind of a uh, follow-on question to a handbook or policy, uh, but in a different sect. So we've talked a little bit about social media. Uh, what steps should a company go through when implementing policies related to social media? And I touched on a little bit in my last answer, but training. Um, training is key. So anything in there, a lot of, unfortunately, you know, a lot of the things that can happen in a business, go be, the, the consequences of them go beyond simply terminating that employee or some sort of discipline for that employee. If something is egregious enough, it can unfortunately lead to lawsuits. It can lead to losing valuable contracts or clients and things like that. So you, a company really needs to go through and look at their individual issues that they might face on a day-to-day basis and determine what's, what's likely to happen here, what may happen in this scenario, and go through and make sure their employees know what those issues are and how to handle that. And that goes um, in, in addition to simply, you know, what am I allowed to post while I'm at work? What am I allowed? What are what are what are businesses allowed to post at all? Um, and are their employees allowed to post at all? What what is the email policy? These types of things, because once something's sent, it's not coming back. Um, when something's online, it's really difficult or impossible to get it offline. So you want to make sure that the, the employees are trained and that the company has processes in place to deal with uh, those types of scenarios when they when they do occur. Yeah, those are great insights. Thanks for sharing those. We're talking today with Grant Brim with Brim Law. Brim Law represents businesses throughout the state of Georgia as their outsourced in-house counsel. The firm's services cover a variety of issues, including consultation and document preparation, employment relationships, vendor agreements, general contract review, asset purchases, mergers, and brand protection, just to name a few. Uh, I do want to shift the conversation a little bit to M&A. Uh, in your experience, Grant, what are the most critical items from a legal standpoint that need to be addressed in an M&A transaction? So ideally, um, and oftentimes this is the case, when I get a client, either the buyer or the seller that comes in for, an, for, a, for usually an asset purchase, they're coming from a, you know, a trusted referral source like a CPA or maybe a business broker or something like that. And it's usually sure. early in the process. So I can we can sort of deal with everything ahead of time. However, that's not always the case. And a lot of times... I get, you know, buyers or sellers, which is great. You know, they call me after they may already have an LOA, a, a LOI in place, a letter of intent in place. 
or, um, or at some point they've already gotten through the process. Some of the key issues that are often overlooked are initially is the letter of intent. Um, I would not uh, recommend signing a letter of intent until you have retained an attorney to help you with that. Because I think there's a misconception, often a misconception, that when a, when a party signs a letter of intent that they are, this is not a binding document. And it very well might not be, but it also might be. And if you don't have an attorney help you review that and make sure that it is what you think it is um, and what it needs to be, then you could end up uh, binding yourself to something that you never intended to in the first place. Um, the other thing that comes up is a lot of folks, and this, this, as I said, I'm getting a lot of less experienced um, buyers and sellers. This happens a lot in this situation where they haven't thought about, you know, should it be an entity purchase or should it be an asset purchase? And um, most of the time, it's probably should be an asset purchase. There are exceptions to that. You know, it's possible that they're that the that the the selling company has contracts in place that are assets that are not transferable or assignable to another entity. Sure. Something like if that's if that's a significant enough issue, for example, that might be a reason to do an entity transfer instead of an asset transfer. So there are reasons why that might not be the case, but that needs to be um, looked into. And, and discussed and analyzed with the client before that decision is made. And then from there, you know, you're looking at things like, you know, what liens are in place? What, what, uh, what, what are the, the, the tax liabilities of the uh, selling entity and financing and things like that? So these are all things I know I've had, <laughs> I've had clients that have come to me in the past that have already done the deal and are dealing with the consequences of not dealing with these things. So Things like undealt with liens or tax liabilities that weren't disclosed and weren't dealt with, you know, the, the, the purchase contract may technically say you can go after the seller for that. But as a practical matter, that might not actually work because they may be gone. They may not have any money, things like that. So these are things you want to deal with ahead of time. That's the that's the kind of work that I do and stuff that I help with. Sure. That's, uh, that's an invaluable. Uh, and in closing, Grant, I just want to say uh, for our listeners, what advice would you give to business owners that are getting ready for an exit? Um, I, well, my number one area of advice usually is, and, and this is um, this assumption, the assumption is that they're coming to me really early, you know, that they're coming to me and that I think I might want to sell my business. My number one, uh, what I do at that point is I typically will send them to uh, somebody that can, a business coach or a CFO or a qualified CPA or some evaluation expert that can give you give them that the appropriate guidance in terms of is this business ready to sell? Um, because I I don't that's not really what I focus on. Um, now once we get to the point where we have either a business that's ready to sell or maybe we actually have an offer on the table or there something a tentative acceptance of that offer, then what we're looking at is um, making sure that the the finances are clean, making sure let's go through the UCC filings. And what do we have out there that, and, and for the audience that doesn't that have experience with UCC liens, these are liens that are filed typically when, you know, any kind of business finance, a commercial lending situation, there's going to be a UCC lien filed. They don't always get canceled. Um, you know, you could pay the, you could pay it off. You could take a loan out next month and pay it off in six months. Four years from now, that lien may just be sitting out there that somebody forgot to cancel. You might have 20 of those. So that stuff takes time to clear up. So you want to, the, the biggest piece of advice I would give is get, a qualified attorney 
in place as soon as possible to start going through these things and making sure that, okay, when we get to the closing table, we're ready to go. We don't have these issues to worry about to the extent we do. Let's go ahead and deal with them now. And, um, and so we don't have to worry about them later. Yeah, I know as a former banker, I had the experience of uh, unfortunately not terminating some UCC liens on uh, on loans that I thought were were terminated, only to find out later that our uh, uh, you know loan review area uh, legal team did not did not re, you know did not terminate those. That's yeah, if, that's and, an and issue. What I found too is you know you'll often find if it's a big bank, it's usually not a problem. It, if it's a small company that that is the creditor on that, you might have a real difficult time finding somebody to help you with that. And there is a statutory process that we can go through to get those things cleared off, but it takes a little bit of time. So we need to be ahead of the game for those situations. Yeah, great point. Um, if someone wants to get in touch with you either by phone or email, Grant, what's the best way for them to reach you? Yes, uh, my phone number, my office number is 678 353 Five zero and my email address is gbrim. That's just my first initial G and my last name brim b r i m like the brim of a hat. Gbrim at brimlawfirm.com. Grant's been great having you, and certainly appreciate the legal insights you've brought to our listening audience today. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. So I want to take a minute. You know, we've reached the midpoint in the year. And you might be reflecting on the first half and are either looking to course correct or finish strong. So what are you going to start doing, stop doing, and keep doing? One of the ways to determine this is to look at key metrics of your business. Uh, You can't manage what you don't measure. Here are three things that you must know about key performance indicators. Uh, First, uh, key key performance indicators, or I call them KPIs, build on each other. Uh, They're derived from the metrics in your business that are created out of measurements like profitability, revenue, or number of customers. Generally, ratios and percentages make the best KPIs. So instead of looking at profitability, look at your gross or net profit margin. Uh, Second thing is KPIs become relevant when they're measured over time. So looking at your gross or net margin this year against the last two years can tell whether you're improving, declining, or inconsistent. And third, uh, KPIs that a company measures will vary depending on the type of business. Uh, However, I find that most business owners are interested in four things. They're interested in profit, cash, leverage, and activity. Activity is how they're collecting their receivables or turning their inventory. So you can learn more about how to measure these by visiting our website, theprofitabilitycoach.net. If you're still not sure where to start or what your numbers are telling you, let's talk about a business financial checkup. If you want to keep up with the latest in pro-business news, follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram at The Profitability Coach. If you want to listen to past or future ProfitSense episodes, you can find us on ProfitSenseRadio.com. This is ProfitSense with Bill McDermott signing off. Make it a great day.